Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. 
At the end of the day, a group of Jews and Arabs decided to get together and break the fast as a group. And in the middle of a war, to see groups coming together like this seemed like a small but still kind of revolutionary act that allows people to begin the process of building bridges. That was Ari Shapiro, co-host of NPR's All Things Considered. As a reporter, Ari travels the world, and so he sees the world through a different lens, whether he's traveling on Air Force One with President Obama or attending a desert get-together with Jews and Palestinians who are trying to reach across the aisle. I'll be speaking with Ari in just a little bit. But before that, Simran Seti is here. She's the host of an everything chocolate podcast called The Slow Melt. She's also author of Bread, Wine, Chocolate, The Slow Loss of Foods We Love. Today we chat about the senses and especially sound and the way it affects how we perceive taste. Simran Seti, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. Chocolate, your podcast, The Slow Melt. Why have you used chocolate as sort of your entry point for some of these topics? So I spent five years on six continents, and I realized through those journeys that there was so many stories that could be told through chocolate. You know, so the podcast, The Slow Melt, is about chocolate, but it's really using chocolate as a way to talk about history and geography and science and deliciousness and so many other subjects. Russell Jones was on one of your shows recently, and he has a really interesting job. He designs aromas that enhance color and colors that enhance taste and I guess he also worked uh, with Heston Blumenthal in England, who obviously is a master of sound and flavor going together. So let's just talk about that. Sound and food. How do the two things go together? I spoke with Russell Jones, who's the co-founder of Condiment Junkie. It's a creative agency based in London on the surprising ways our senses influence flavor. And here's what he said about how sound affects what we taste. We can design sounds that enhance taste, aromas that enhance color. It's how um, the senses cross over. Sound is extraordinary. Our sensory experience of food can change up to 60% depending on what we hear while we're eating and drinking. And I remember there was one study that he had done where he, he said, our sense of hearing is so sophisticated that 96% of the people that he had surveyed as part of his, his agency, Condiment Junkie, could tell the difference between hot and cold water just by listening to it. And I was huh. really struck by that, how sound seems like the, the unrecognized influence in, in how we experience flavor. Yeah, he mentioned that certain frequencies of sounds change flavor. Uh, he, and he did this the most famously, I guess, with Heston Blumenthal, when he had a seafood dish and a speaker and a seashell on the table, which played the sounds of the sea, which was an emotional experience for people that made the fish taste fresher. I remember Heston Blumenthal actually told me once that one of the diners actually broke down and cried. The goal was to make that seafood dish tastes as like fresh as possible. And then when you add this added element to it of of music that might take people back to a certain time in their life or a certain companion, you know, that it it really, um, it kind of becomes about the dish, but not about the dish. It genuinely affects your taste at the time of eating this fish. The sound brings back these emotions, 
the sensorial memories cross the threshold of consciousness and influence your perception and it makes the dish more enjoyable because you're conjuring up happy memories. Russell Jones mentioned uh, this psychological test with a round shape and a sharp shape. What were the two choices, the specific words they use in the test? What were they? Uh, booba and kiki. Booba and kiki. <laughs> and, and so just explain yes. what that means. If you will. Right. So booba. So he asked, what comes up when you hear the word booba, right? It's a psychological test that was done. And, and booba feels round, right? And kiki feels angular and sharp. It was so funny. In the podcast, he starts asking me, what's the, what's the shape of a lemon? My rational mind was like, what's the right answer? I don't know the shape of a lemon. But what comes out is sharp. You know, and so what he was talking about was this cross-sensory kind of understanding or perception of how we move in the world. That, yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a taste, you know, sour, but we think about it as being pointed in shape. You know, so we experience, if we listen to certain music, not only uh, something becoming sweeter or more bitter, but also having a grainier texture or a smoother texture that, you know, that they're always kind of working on multiple levels. There's an old psychological test called Booba Kiki, where you have a round shape and a sharp shape. And you say one's called Booba, one's called Kiki, which is which? And everyone would say the sharp shape's called Kiki. So if we have a fizzy lemon drink, we know that you should name it something that's more Kiki than, than, uh, than Booba, that your music for your advert should be fast, high-pitched, the logo should be sharp, the texture on the can should be sharp, that when you open the can, it should go instead of And all of these things will prime you for a zesty, citrusy, fresh, sparkling experience. And when you have that, it's more enjoyable, more memorable, and it will actually be more zesty and more sparkling. So it, then you guys started talking about what's the optimal setting for eating milk chocolate. And the answer was something soft and smooth and low lighting just to complement yeah. the, the booba, if you would, of milk chocolate, right? Right. Milk chocolate is round. It's uh, low pitched. It's slow. So you get in these instinctual associations. It's soft and smooth. It's not coarse if you had a texture. So you start now setting an environment where it's nice low lighting and it's very instinctual and it's a lot of it would be learnt, a lot of it would just be learnt associations. So in the last year or two, I've, I've, I've really gotten to the point, I don't like 70 or 80% cacao chocolate. I just find it's overpowering and it's not very interesting. And I like a um, dark milk chocolate. Does that make any sense to you? Or am I going back to some stupid childhood preference? I don't think it's stupid at all. I think the best chocolate is the one that we love. And um, you know what I love about chocolate is it is such a complex food. Wine has about 200 aroma compounds. Chocolate has about 600 aroma compounds. There's a lot going on there. So the next time I eat milk chocolate, I'll turn down the lights. Fantastic. Dim the lights and enjoy. That was Simrat Seti of the Slow Melt podcast. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. As always, all of our shows are available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and also on Spotify. Now it's time to take some calls with my co-host, Sarah Malton. She's the star of Sarah's Weeknight Nails on public television, also the author of the book, Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready? I am so ready, Chris. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Brendan. I'm from Fresno, California. How are you? 
Doing well. How about you? Pretty good, unless I can't answer your question, and then, <laughs> then we'll see. <laughs> well, I trust you. So I really like chicken uh, broth-based soup, but I'm wondering how can I make a good soup, you know, quick and easy during the week? It has a depth of flavor. Well, Sarah and I will disagree about this. There are two ways I would do it. Take a whole chicken, put it in a bunch of water to cover, simmer it at low simmer for 25 minutes, turn the heat off, put the top on, let it sit about another 40 minutes, and the chicken will be exactly where you want it, 160 in the breast. Take it out, and now you have a great broth. You can shred the chicken, put it back in the soup, add anything else you want. In the, initially, you can add ginger or scallions or whatever you like to the water to flavor it. Or use chicken parts, put that in plenty of water, simmer that for about 40 minutes, take them out, and then you have chicken broth as well. I'm not a big fan of canned broth because if you look at the back of the label, uh, it doesn't mention chicken in the first few ingredients. (laughs) So Uh water and chicken in 45 minutes with chicken parts, you can make your own soup and add back to anything you want. That would be my quick and dirty answer. But Sarah's looking at me with that... You fool. <laughs> well, no, there's nothing. I, I mean, I think it's wonderful, but do you have an immersion blender? No, I don't. Do you have a regular blender or a food processor, either one? Cause, yeah, I've got both. Okay, so what you do is you start with a whole bunch of onions or, you know, chop, slice, whatever, and it depends on if you're going to puree it or not puree it, how you cut them. And you just soften them, and then you can add garlic or not add garlic and some other spices. And then you add whatever is your vegetable of the day. So it could be chopped up cauliflower or broccoli or carrots. If it's carrots, I might go with the ginger and the lemongrass and the whatever. And then you add your broth to barely, like maybe an inch above the vegetables. And you simmer it until the vegetables are really tender, and then you can puree it and you've got soup. But another way to go is to start out the same way with the onions and maybe the garlic. You know, I love adding a little bit of pork product, so pancetta bacon, Canadian bacon, which is very lean, to get that nice porky flavor. And then add some beans and just chopped up vegetables and chicken broth and just simmer it. And then just take out a couple of ladlefuls and puree them and put them back in, and that will thicken the soup. So I never use cream or flour or anything to thicken the soup. You just puree some vegetables, and that will thicken it. But yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, it's a little more healthy that way, too. It is. But there's four zillion different ways. Canned beans are great to thicken, and they're really healthy. But you may have been talking about a clear broth anyway. I don't know. Were you? Yeah, I was talking clear broth. Really? Just start with onions give you a great base to any soup. and then Can I just say something here what? in defense of my proposal? <laughs> it's 45 minutes start to finish with chicken parts. Can you just take them out and shred them and put them back? It's under an hour. Right, and it's not hands-on time. And it's clear broth, which I like, and you can add some pasta at the end if you want to cook pasta. Or some, you know, Asian noodles, do it if you like. And do you have a good source for rotisserie chicken, too? Um, yeah. That's your best friend if you like your rotisserie chicken, because then you can shred it up and throw it in as your meat. But mm, you can throw idea. any leftovers in chicken broth, too. So start stockpiling leftovers from a night before, and then just throw them all into a soup. Okay. You know, and, and Parmesan rind will add a lot of flavor. Sarah, you should write a book on 50 ways to doctor really crummy supermarket chicken stock. Because <laughs> that's what, I figured out that's what I've been doing for 35 years. It's not as bad as beef broth. And, and the all natural stuff sometimes has no flavor. Oh, absolutely yeah. not, because it has no salt. Right. Yes. I think you win this round. Okay. I, I concede. I concede. Okay. Yeah. Well, Brendan, I hope you got some nice ideas there. Definitely. Thank you so yeah, much. Thanks, I really Brandon. appreciate it. Yeah. Appreciate you taking the call. Take care. Hello, who do we have on the line? Deemer. Well, welcome. How can we help you? 
I have a question about your lemon butter milk pound cake. Right. I've made it a couple of times. The first time that I made it, and by the way, it's a wonderful, delicious cake. I wouldn't be making it a second or third time. But I'm having difficulty getting it out of the bunt pan. Yeah. The first time I made it, I followed the recipe to the tea. And everywhere the sugar was inside the pan with the coating, the cake adhered to the bunt pan and wouldn't come undone. But the next time that I tried it, I omitted the sugar. And I was very careful to put butter all down into the crevices and everything else. I let it go in the pan for a little bit longer, maybe 15, 20 minutes instead of the prescribed 10. And it again came out. And I'm beginning to think that maybe it needs to sit in there for maybe 30 minutes. Is that too long to let it sit? No, I would. I think that's fine. But let me ask a question about the bunt pan. Is this uh, a pan you've purchased recently or you've had it around? Oh, no. I've had it since the um, age of initial bunt pan. Of Nordic wear, yeah. It's a little heavier than the ones that are coming out today. Well, we tested this for two or three weeks. We had trouble too. And we did oh, find that if we bought, it was, I think, a gold tone pan. It has sort of mm-hmm. a goldish color and it's quote unquote nonstick. We found that one worked really well. Uh, of course, all nonstick okay. bakeware is not really nonstick. It's low stick. The other thing <laughs> is I would guess that the reason the sugar adhered, made the cake adhere, because there wasn't a sufficient layer of butter between the sugar and the pan. So when you heated up mm. the pan in the oven, the bump pan, that sugar melted and caramelized and got very sticky, and the cake yes. batter stuck to the pan. So. One of the things you want to be really careful about with a softened butter is make sure you get a really even coating of that in the pan. Any spot Mm -hmm. where you don't have butter and just have sugar, it's going to stick. The other thing to do is use a baking spray. Well, this next time I'm going to... But you should go out and buy a a new nonstick pan. That'll solve your problem. But just a general question. I'd love your opinion, Chris. Um, I've always had better luck melting the butter and brushing it in melted rather than trying to use the softened butter. It just seems to be much easier to coat every last little crevice. It's a good idea. Because there's no crevices in a ramekin. If the sugar didn't stick, that meant there was no butter there. Good point. So that might be something you want to try, because butter has a better flavor than the spray. It does. I wouldn't use the butter spray, because that's nasty. But but just the baking sprays, which has flour in it. But to go back to your first question, I, I would let it sit half an hour. Okay. It might additionally cool and then retract from the sides of the pan a little bit more. Make sure that you especially the center part of the bun pan, you might get a little knife in there and just make sure it's perfectly released. The best knife for getting down there gently and everything is my husband's fishing uh, knife. I wonder how he feels about that. Well cleaned, we hope. It's been donated. Ah, donated. It was donated at 2 in the morning when he wasn't looking. Yes, exactly. I know how that works. I'm not telling. I'm not telling. Okay. I have to hide my knives actually in secret drawers sometimes. Well, Dee, thank you. This has been fun. Thank you so much. Okay. I'm glad you love the cake. Take care. Yes. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you have a pressing culinary question in search of an answer, give us a ring, 1-855-4-BOWTIE, 1-855-4-BOWTIE. You can also email us anytime at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Suzanne. 
Wolf from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. How can we help you? Okay. For years, I've wondered what it means in a recipe when it says chili powder, and it's spelled C-H-I-L-I or C-H-I-L-E. And I sent you the recipe from Phyllis Diller's chicken fruits on horseback or whatever. <laughs> and she, <laughs> I know. Wait, 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 wait. Phyllis, what, did Phyllis Diller have a cookbook? No, she was in Bon Appetit, believe it or not. What? She was quite a well, character. Well, in, in a long line of famous Hollywood celebrities or television celebrities who did food. You know? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like well, Vincent anyway, Price. Anyway, she yeah. just, funny, and it's calls for chili powder. a quarter teaspoon of chili powder for these deviled eggs. No, it, chili powder just means the combo stuff you buy in the supermarket which has oregano. lots of things other than ground chilies. In yeah. It. yeah, it has oregano and Salt. chilies. And, yeah, yeah, that, but it's C-H-I-L-I. It's, it's weird, but later in the recipe it says cayenne, but isn't there chili powder that's ground-up chili Well, stuff? first of all, Phyllis, Phyllis Diller was uh, a 60s, 70s phenomenon. At that time, you probably didn't go to the supermarket and find a purely ground New Mexico chili or whatever it is. One, one variety. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah. it was always a blend. What I've always come to understand is when you see C-H-I-L-I, it means either a blend of spices or in the case of chili when you, you know, with ground beef and stuff, it refers to that, many ingredients. Right. When you see C-H-I-L-E, it means the actual chili. It's referring ah, to the actual chili. I oh. can I can sleep now that I know this. No, but don't you think, look, I think it was interchangeable for a long I think it, time. But that was yeah. wrong. Yeah, I mean, it was wrong. Yeah, it was, it was interchangeable. Wrong. But people did use them interchangeably. Right. Here's my question. Is there a Phyllis Diller cookbook? Because if there's a Phyllis Diller cookbook, I want it for Christmas. And she dedicated it, of course, to her husband, who she, remember what she called her husband? Fang. Fang. Yeah. We love that. I wish I had as good a name for Is my husband. Is that what you call your husband? No, but I, I should start. Well, she, I, well, she was quite something. She, she was like Lucille Ball. Yes, she was funny. Quite independent and, and funny and, uh, yeah. Yeah, irreverent. She was ahead of her she time. She was ahead and, of her time. Yeah. And Maybe, Chris, yeah. I love your bow tie. The bow tie gets me every time. Okay, guess what color I'm wearing right now? Yellow. Very yes, good. You got it. It is yellow. Amazing. It is yellow. <laughs> That's, we should do a contest. Yeah. Well, you you just like, won. And then they win something. What do they win? Uh, the Phyllis Diller cookbook. Okay, there we go. <laughs> if I can find it. Yeah. Suzanne, this was uh, highly entertaining. Yes, thank yeah. you, Suzanne. Thank you. Oh, you're okay. welcome. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Okay, bye. How is, she, is there a camera in here? How does know. she know? I'm getting nervous. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. In just a bit, I chat with Ari Shapiro. He's co-host of NPR's All Things Considered, about everything from the Syrian refugee crisis to Swedish fermented herring to making a cooking video with the Von Trapp family. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, 
man, this beer is good. <laughs> there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mostry Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Ari Shapiro is not just co-host of NPR's All Things Considered. He's also an avid food reporter. We chat about the Swedish specialty fermented herring, he actually ate it, and eating meat pies at a performance of Sweeney Todd. Ari, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. There's a story about an immigrant, I think from Syria, and you or someone 
said, let me buy you a cup of tea. And, and the quote from this person was, do you think I'm poor? Just yeah. because I'm going to Europe on a raft. I'm a structural engineer. Yeah. I've designed hotels in Dubai. I don't need you to pay for my tea. And that really says a lot about uh, immigration and what's going on in the world, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that uh, especially because as Americans, we have the luxury of two big oceans on either side of us. We tend to think of the conflicts and revolutions happening on the other side of the world as happening to people who are somehow fundamentally different from us. And the more time I've spent, the more I've reached the actually very obvious conclusion that these people are not different from us at all. And particularly when you're talking about Syrian refugees who are trying to find a better life in Europe, um, you are not necessarily talking about people who have nothing and have been at the bottom of the totem pole. In that particular instance, you're talking about structural engineers and doctors and teachers and lawyers and families that were well off or middle class or struggling. You really see the entire um, spectrum of human existence in what was once this thriving country of Syria that is now in so many parts of the country just a ruin. We're going to switch gears now uh, to some of your other stories you've done. The, the Swedish herring, I don't know. Oh, Sir Strumming. Sir Strumming, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I've been to Sweden, uh, and mm-hmm. I've never had the opportunity to eat this. Could you just describe that? Because you, you have a, a chef there, a person who has a – it's canned, and mm-hmm. you mentioned the can is bulging at the seams. Oh, yeah. What was so wonderful was that this chef, Malin Soderstrom, who is really a very well-known chef in Stockholm and does sort of – contemporary takes on traditional Swedish food. When I told her that I was coming to Sweden and wanted to try Sir Strumming, she was so enthusiastic and eager to share it with me in the way that people so often are eager to share the foods of their childhood. And so Sir Strumming is thought of as a northern Swedish dish, something you eat in the rural country. And she talks about how in the high summer where the sun never disappeared, you know, on the coast, they would eat these Sir Strumming feasts, which you can only do outside because the smell is so powerful. When you open the can, you have to open it underwater. Otherwise, the sort of fermented fish juices will burst out of the can at you. And the truth is, this had been my second encounter with Sir Strumming. My first encounter was more than 10 years earlier. I had a Swedish roommate in Boston. I had heard about this stuff. She was visiting her family in Sweden. I asked her to bring back a can. We tried eating it, and we just put this whole chunk of slimy decay. It was so horrible, I couldn't even swallow it. And what the chef Malin Soderstrom taught me was that you use Sir Strumming not as, like, take a bite out of it like an apple, but, you know, finely uh, tear it up and and put it in a layered sandwich with boiled uh, potatoes and onions, and it becomes this sort of funky undertone layer of flavor on top of everything else. So, um, like anything else, the culture (laughs) informs the food. You can't just take a bite out of the thing. You have to learn how it becomes a part of the cuisine. Uh, you, you also did a piece on Sweeney Todd and Bill Yoss, the former yeah. White House pastry chef. And uh, they, the concept was a small theater where you'd actually eat meat pies before watching the production. Uh, could right. you talk Sweeney about Sweeney Todd, that? of course, is about a barber who kills his victims and then the woman downstairs turns them into meat pies right. and serves them to enthusiastic customers. So serving meat pies at Sweeney Todd is sort of a macabre twist on the typical production. The picture of the meat pies uh, looked terrific. I mean, Oh, they were amazing. Yeah. I mean, Bill Yossis was the pastry chef for President Obama and uh, is an incredibly talented chef. Uh, he now runs a a company that does mail-order pies, and Sweeney Todd hired him to do the show. What I found most interesting about the conversation with him was when he talked about the similarities between the theater and the White House, that they are both this sort of staged, performative, 
um, venue where, you know, the thing starts on time, you go through the motions as planned out, and in both of them, he is sort of looking in, playing a role that is part of the action but not at the center of the action, you know, Hmm. creating. And every night he goes to the theater and serves the meat pies in the half hour before the show. And and he had an apron with Harrington's on it, right? Yeah. Oh, he really got into the role. And, And when I asked him why he decided to make chicken pot pies, it was also a vegetarian option, but I said, why chicken? And he said, you know, whenever people taste unusual meats that they're not familiar with, what do they always say? Tastes like chicken. So I thought, what would humans taste like? Well, who knows? Yeah. If you could actually answer that question, you'd probably... <laughs> probably don't belong in the yeah, theater. Or maybe you belong. do. I, yeah. So you spent uh, a few years as a White House correspondent during the Obama administration. Yeah. Um, anything you'd like to share with us? You know, I remember the first time I saw him really close up. I was on Air Force One, and we were flying to the Midwest for a clean jobs event. And he came to the back of the plane to chat with us, and he was standing just to the left of my seat. And so I was sort of staring up at him. And I noticed razor bumps on his chin. And in that (laughs) moment, I was like, oh, this is just a guy who gets up and shaves in the morning and gets razor bumps like anyone else. And yes, he may have, you know, the most important, one of the most difficult jobs in the world. And, you know, he's the president of the United States, leader of the free world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, fundamentally... You know, he's just a guy. You were in northern Iraq, and you had a meal that was chickpeas floating in broth with a poached egg on it with some flatbread. Yeah. Th- th- that's my sweet spot, which is incredible simplicity mm-hmm. uh, and integrity in the food. Do you want to just talk about, in all your travels, the, the simplicity of some of the food? Well, that was a particularly interesting experience because it was— uh, in an area that had just been reclaimed from ISIS weeks before. It was a town called Sununi, and it had been a population of more than 100,000 before ISIS stormed through. And by the time my translator and I went there, maybe 10, 15,000 people had returned, mostly young men, military age. And so we met the mayor, and first he, he sat us down for lunch because hospitality is so important. And even in a near-war zone, even in a city that is nearly decimated, it's important to show hospitality. And so we had this dish called lablabi, which is, as you described, chickpeas and broth, a poached egg, flatbread. And so even when you have almost nothing, this is a thing that you can make. You know, you have a chicken that can lay eggs, you have some dried beans, you can make this dish. But then... Years later, in Tunisia, I had a dish called lablabi, which you could see the common thread, but it was a completely different dish. It started out with torn up stale bread, and then over that they ladled chickpeas and broth, and then they added harissa and tuna and capers and preserved lemon and a raw egg that they stirred into it so that the egg sort of cooked as incorporated into this. But what you had at the end was this darkly colored, richly flavored, salty, funky, spicy, intense, almost like the texture of chili that couldn't have been more different from the lablabi that I had in northern Iraq. But clearly, as it had gone from Iraq through the Middle East, across North Africa to Tunisia, or maybe the other way around, I don't know, it, it had evolved into this very different kind of dish where you could see why they had the same name, but they tasted nothing like each other. Well, it's interesting. I was, I was a few months ago, I was in Washington with Jose Andres uh, at his house. What a great guy. Yeah, yeah he uh, has, you know, two dozen restaurants, uh, comes from Spain, and he's, he's known very much for sort of this uh, cutting-edge cooking and everything else. But he made a garlic soup. It was garlic, water, stale bread, smoked paprika, and eggs. 
Wow. And salt. And that was it. And it took maybe 20 minutes, and it Mm -hmm. was phenomenal. And you just go, it doesn't get any better than that. This is what I think Jose Andres really understands, is that while innovation and surprise in food are wonderful, if it's not delicious and if it isn't rooted in the fundamentals of what makes great food great, then you've lost the thread. And too often, I've been to fancy restaurants that are so focused on being fancy that they forget to be delicious. And Jose Andres always gets that. And so no matter how fancy his cooking gets, he never loses sight of the fact that it needs to be delicious. He said it was an end-of-month recipe. I said, what do you mean? Well, his father got paid once a month at the beginning of the month. The last week, they had no money, right? Wow. So they had to cook whatever they had, and this is what yeah. they, it was an end-of-month recipe. Yeah. And it seems to me the context is as important as the food. So I, I'm no longer interested in just the mathematical perfect recipe. The food has to have context. And the story around the recipe is what makes it charming. Speaking of stories, you had a great piece about, quote-unquote, normalization. This is an evening meal between Jews and Arabs. Well, this was during the war a few years ago when Israel was at war with Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And it happened to be during Ramadan, which is a fasting month for Muslims. And it was also a Jewish holiday called Tisha B'Av when observant Jews fast. And at the end of the day, a group of Jews and Arabs decided to get together and break the fast as a group. And it was in a place that was an area of dispute, sort of near the border of West and East Jerusalem. And these people came together not to agree on politics or discuss the war, but just to eat food together and talk together. You know, stereotypes grow and bloom and people talk about each other rather than talk to each other. And this was just an opportunity to talk to each other. And in the middle of a war, to see groups coming together like this and, you know, not singing kumbaya and holding hands or anything, but just having a conversation and breaking bread seemed like a small but still kind of revolutionary act that allows people to begin the process of building bridges. And and that in and of itself might not get people where they need to go, but you can't get where you need to go without starting somewhere. And I think that was a really kind of hopeful beginning. So there's been a lot of changes in the food world all over the world, but it especially here, I think. I think we're, we're not thinking about American food versus ethnic food. It's a very different way of, of thinking about food. D- does that, and since you're a political correspondent as well, does that give you any hope about the future? Or because you, you I think, believe food and culture are intimately related. Are we headed in the right direction here? I think food is a way that we can relate to each other. I mean, you know, when you listen to People from the Middle East get into a conversation about falafel. Suddenly, the politics of which government controls which land start to fade a little bit into the background. I think um, the reaction that you saw when there was a conversation about a taco truck on every corner was actually heartening, that people are really excited about having a taco truck on every corner. Um, You know, I think about 10 years ago, shakshuka was a dish that most people probably were not familiar with in the United States. And now it's on every brunch menu in America. Now, maybe that's just like a fad and a trend, but maybe it is beginning to expand our horizons and understand something by eating it in a way that we might not understand by reading it or listening to it on the radio or watching it on TV. Ari Shapiro, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. It's been really great talking to you, Chris. Thanks for having me. That was Ari Shapiro, co-host of NPR's All Things Considered. You know, maybe governments are the problem. 
A successful structural engineer who designed hotels in Dubai is now a Syrian refugee. The group of Jews and Palestinians share bread together. You know, one-on-one, -on -one, most people are good people. Yet governments have a very long history of doing very bad things to good people. It makes me think that people and governments actually have very little in common. Right now, we're heading into the kitchen of Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe. Lynn, how are you? Hi, Chris. So I bet you don't think you have a potato salad problem. <laughs> I don't think I do. You, but you do. Everyone thinks they have great potato salad recipes, but, you know, most of them are too mayonnaise -y. The potatoes don't come through. Texture's not great. So today at Milk Street, we decided to completely revamp the potato salad. And oddly enough, we're traveling halfway across the world to Japan, where there's about a 150-year-old tradition of taking some American recipes and doing them in Japan, but with a twist. And one of the recipes they've done is potato salad. Right. So, Chris, we started by looking at these potato salads that they make in Japan. We found them to be creamier, with less mayonnaise, they were tangier, uh, they had these great bites of crispy vegetable. They use an ingredient there called kewpie, which is a Japanese mayonnaise. It's eggier, sweeter, tangier than our version. Uh, we added a few things to replicate that, like sugar, more vinegar, and extra egg yolk. Um, we also wanted to choose the right potato here. A Yukon Gold is a creamy potato. An interesting technique that they use there is to partially mash half of the potatoes. So what that does is create creaminess without adding extra mayonnaise. So you take half the potatoes, leave half as cubes, and the other half are mashed down almost to a paste. So uh, is this just like dump, mash, and stir? Is that about it? Not quite. Close. After you've cooked the potatoes, um, while they're cooling, you want to sprinkle them with the vinegar at that point. That will allow the vinegar to uh, get inside of the potatoes. If you put it over them when they're cool, it just kind of slips off into the dressing, doesn't actually penetrate the potato. The other thing that we do here is we salt the vegetables. So we have cucumber, uh, grated carrot, and red onion. Salting the vegetables will keep them crispy when you add them to the salad, and it will also soften the harshness of the onion. So how does this all come together? You're just going to mix it together, the potatoes, the mayonnaise. We add a hard-cooked egg, some ham. Sprinkle it with scallions. You can serve it room temperature or chill it. It's a great summer side salad. So, oddly enough, we solved the potato salad conundrum by going to Japan. It's really brighter, a little bit more vinegar, and it's a little crunchier, too. And it looks great. I see a little bit of color in the bowl. Great job. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks, Chris. You can find this week's recipe for Japanese potato salad at MilkStreetRadio.com. After the break, more of your culinary questions, dilemmas, catastrophes with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, 
available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Mostry Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now, it's my favorite part of the show. We take some of your calls uh, with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah Moulton, how are you? I'm good, and I'm ready to hear what people want to know. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hello. My name's Susan. Hi, Susan. How are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Good. How can we help you? Well, I have a question about seeds. I bake a cracker that involves four different seeds. I use pumpkin, sesame, flax, and sunflower seeds. And my question is, how long of a shelf life do they have? Do they become rancid at any point in time, either before or after baking? After baking is less of a problem, but before baking, yes, they do. I would always store them in the fridge. I have this large nut seed area in my kitchen, the pantry, and I just actually this weekend threw out about half of it because yeah. they actually go bad fairly quickly. Yeah, so fridge or even freezer. Freezer's yeah. good. 
freezer. Oh. Okay. How long do they last in the fridge? I mean, I do use them up pretty quickly, but how long of a shelf life in the fridge do you think they last? I, I would guess two months. I really, I think longer. I I'm really longer. don't know. The whole thing is, you know, sometimes you taste something and just taste it off and you're not quite sure why. Mm-hmm. And it's usually because it's rancid. We all have to get better at figuring that out. And the only way to figure that out is if you have a suspicion of, say, your sesame seeds are maybe not quite perfect, to get a new fresh jar that you know is really fresh and taste the two side by side, which will help to educate you about. Okay, but here's the annoying thing. You have a recipe that calls for a tablespoon or two of sesame seeds, like most of them do, right? Yeah. Right. Like a little stir fry. And then you buy this whole tub and then... (laughs) And then it's three months before you need sesame seeds again, and they're gone. But if you keep them in the freezer, that's why I say freezer. Freezer, yeah. Not fridge. Good point. So freezer, okay. And then once they're baked, do you think they're okay? Yes. As long as they're wrapped in um, a good plastic wrap or a tin, even, the crackers? I'd say for a while. I mean, I... Not a few weeks, I would think. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't wrap... I'm not a fan of plastic wrap. I think things should breathe a little bit. Yeah, because they'll get be soggy. Yeah. yeah, a tin would be fine. Yeah, they're good for a while. Sure. For a couple of weeks. But I mean, again, I wouldn't let them go for months because... Well, it's not the seeds that'll go bad. It's the crackers going to get nasty. Well, the seeds could go bad too. Could get well, rancid. How do seeded crackers that you buy off the shelf last so long? Oh, sometimes those are rancid too. Oh, okay. See, <laughs> this is really a depressing call. <laughs> it's like, can we have some good news on this thing before we get off the phone? But I, I'm impressed you make your own crackers. I do. They're delicious, and I use rye flour that's locally milled. Good for you. Wow. Yeah. I love rye flour. That that's is my new wonderful. So it's rye flour and what else? I use a uh, bolted rye flour. I use oatmeal that I pulse to break it down a little bit, and then I put herbs wow. and some garlic and onion powder in it. It's a really good cracker. And is there any fat? A um, little bit of uh, olive oil, just a few tablespoons, mm-hmm. and water, and that's it. It's actually based on a Swedish cracker, well, a Scandinavian cracker, actually. Oh, yes. Yeah. I know one that you buy in the store that's like, yeah, nice. That sounds terrific. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think Sarah's right. Freeze it. I yeah. think that's the best solution. All right. Okay. Very Great. good. Thanks, Susan. Thank you very much. Yeah. Bye-bye. Hello. Who do we have on the phone? Hi, this is Peg from Longmont, Colorado. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Very good. And um, we're hoping we can help you. Well, I hope so, too. I've been baking and cooking for a long time, and I understand it. It's really more important to be precise with measurements in baking than it is with cooking. And my question is about measuring butter when baking. Can I trust those little lines on the outside wrapper of the butter stick? Yes. Yes. If I can't, how do I measure cold butter? If I'm supposed to measure melted butter, should I melt it and then measure it? No, you should measure before you melt it. When I do butter with a stick, if it's a whole stick, I cut it in half, then cut it in half, and just keep splitting in half to get what I want. But it makes absolutely no difference if you use four tablespoons instead of three. I can't imagine there's one recipe. Sarah's looking at me with those in devil a pie eyes. Dough, that would make a huge no, difference. No, an yes, extra tablespoon is no. Really in matter. baking, it does. But those little lines are correct. Uh, unless, uh, though, um, sometimes to get into the details, the the wrapper is the not lined is up yet. Yeah, see. So well, so you knows. have to line it up. But back to what Chris does. Cut it in half. Cut, half. cut it in quarters. Then you got four. Cut it in half. You got two. Yeah. Cut okay. it in half. Yeah. You got one. But don't worry. It's not like baking powder, baking soda, or the flour. It's it's not that important. And by the way, one tablespoon of cold butter is the same as one tablespoon of melted. Oh, okay. But it's so. easier to measure it solid. It is. No. Yes. So Excellent. it's not something to worry about. But do worry about flour because... A discrepancy in flour can make a huge difference in baking. Yeah, so you I want to weigh. I measure more than. Always I mean, weigh, weigh your flour. More than measure. 
Yeah, you got to definitely weigh your flour. Good. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Peg. Thank you so much. Yeah, okay. pleasure. Bye-bye. This is Most Your Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a ring anytime. That number is one 855 426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week from Milk Street, it's all about salt. You know, people think about table salt or kosher salt, but there are actually five different categories of salt. There's table salt, there's diamond crystal kosher salt, there's Morton's kosher salt, there's a fine sea salt, and there's also a flaky sea salt, much like a Malden sea salt. Now, what most people don't realize is a teaspoon of each of these is actually quite different. And that's because the size of the grains determine how much weight is in a teaspoon. So let's take a teaspoon of table salt, if that's what a recipe calls for. How much of these other salts should you use to make the conversion? Well, diamond crystal, you'd have to use two teaspoons instead of one because it has very large crystals. Morton's kosher salt, you use just a little bit more, maybe a teaspoon and a quarter. A fine sea salt would be equivalent to table salt, a teaspoon. And a flaky sea salt, which has very large crystals, you use about two and a half teaspoons for one teaspoon of table salt. So as I said, different amounts for different kinds of salt. What about colored salts or flavored salts? Well. It turns out that salt is essentially sodium chloride, about 99%, so those minerals don't really add much flavor. The only one we find that does have a fairly distinctive flavor is gray sea salt, but you'd only use that for sprinkling at the last minute if you want to get that distinctive briny taste. So there you have it, five different types of salt. Each one measures quite differently versus table salt. You have to know your volume equivalents to get the amount of salt just right. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to chat with Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker, about the theater of food. Adam, how are you? I am fine, Christopher. How are you? I'm quite certain that at three in the morning, you wake up and think about something important. So what is that thing? Well, you're almost right. The truth is, is that I'm not asleep at three o'clock in the morning these days. I'm wide awake at three in the morning because <laughs> I have just emerged from the long rehearsal period, the incredibly tempestuous tech period, and finally the opening of my first musical, The Most Beautiful Room in New York, which is, as you know, all about a restaurant, uh, restaurateurs, uh, celebrity chefs, food, and so on. I should add immediately, Chris, of course, that those are the objects of the show, not the subjects of the show. The subject of the show is marriage, really, and rivalry, and uh, long-term resentments, and the meaning of life. (laughs) And one of the things that's fascinating to me about having been so wrapped up in it now for all of this time, well, eight years of preparation and now these eight weeks of rehearsal, is what people expect and don't expect in the representation of cooking on stage. Hmm. It's a very funny thing. You know, one of the things we struggle to do in this show is to put some credible restaurant work on stage. So I insisted that we have a working burner, and I insisted that the chef should be making seven-hour lamb, you know, that great French dish, mm-hmm. gigot, sept heures, throughout the whole first act to kind of mark the timing of the day. Is this an induction burner? Because I know that stages don't allow you to use real flame, right? No, they don't allow you to use real flame. It, is, it has to all be induction. And, oh, by the way, we didn't brown the lamb in your honor, Chris, because I have you. been totally converted to the no-sear, <laughs> no-brown 
<laughs> theory of brazing, of which you are the pioneer. I hope you gave me full credit in the middle of the musical. Of course, there's a yeah. whole song called Chris <laughs> Thought It Up. <laughs> Right there. But now here's the fascinating thing about it. So all of these things were happening, and we have the chef chopping onions in one long song called Chopping Onions and so on. Many people enjoyed the show greatly and were pleased with it, but they were disappointed that there wasn't more cooking in it. And I was bewildered by this because there was so damn much cooking going on on stage. But here's, you know, what they really meant. They meant that they expected to see food being performed. Our expectations of what it looks like to make food and the reality of what it is like to make food are very, very different. I think that food TV and the whole cult of the celebrity chef and so on, which is one of the subjects of the show, by the way, have made people expect to see, as I say, food being performed rather than food being prepared. Because as we both know, the preparation of food, the actual preparation of food, is a tedious business. We wrote a song called Chopping Onions because every chef will always tell you that essentially what cooks do is chop onions. You chop <laughs> onions for the start of pretty much every dish. You chop onions every day. You can delegate your onion chopping to a sous chef. But finally, cooking is about chopping onions. And there's something almost spiritual about that, right? You know, it's that great Zen saying, you know, chop wood, draw water. Right. That's the meaning of life, the daily repetitive essential tasks. As we know, cooks don't make food. Cooks work at food. What restaurant people do more than anything else is just work incredibly long hours. But people don't want to internalize that. They want to see somebody with a giant Japanese cleaver breaking up 16 different things, and they want to see flames that leap, and they want to see water spray from insides of watermelons. Something about living in our culture of spectacular food has soured people on the reality of what food preparation is actually like and how it actually goes on. Well, cooking, as you know, is really not about cooking. It's about everything else that leads up to cooking. When I was in Thailand recently, you know, I realized the cooking was 2% of what they do in Thailand. They prep and they get ready, and then the cooking takes three minutes and they're done, right? Exactly right. Cooking, what chefs do, is almost entirely about getting ready to cook. It's almost never actually about cooking, and most good restaurant cooks, it's true about home cooks too, have minimum theatrics, no theatrics. So my question is, are you giving in to the demands of the audience? Are you going to do food demonstration and performance, or are you going to stick with reality? I'm an artist, Christopher. I'm an artist. <laughs> that means I will sell out if somebody <laughs> offers me. If a good producer comes up and says, let's take it to New York, but we've got to up the spectacle, I will up the spectacle. But in truth, one of the things I'm proud about the show, which you have seen in workshop form, is that it is about the actual, the real life right. of cooks, which is all about working, prepping, getting ready to cook, long hours, tedious tasks. That's the real life of a restaurant. And I'm glad that we put that real life on stage, even if it disappoints people who want the imaginary life of a restaurant. When I saw it in workshop, as you know, I commented that the relationship between the father and daughter was one of the, I think, nicest and most inspiring parts of the show, which makes me think, of course, that that's very true of cooking as well, isn't it? As you know, Chris, that's one of my themes when I'm thinking about the meanings of food, is that what goes on around the table is almost always more interesting than what goes on the table. That's why we care about cooking. That's why we care about food. We cook well, not because, or not only because we want things to taste wonderful, but we want them to create wonderful moments. It's that 
communal life of cooking that I think is its real life. And one of the oddities of that communal life of cooking, as we've discussed in the past, is that restaurants play this weird double role. On the one hand, they are little profit-seeking businesses that have to get more monies in than they put monies out. At the same time, restaurants are the communal chapels where we go to pursue our loves, where we go to celebrate all of our life occasions. And that kind of double life of the restaurant, I think, is one of the things that makes it such a, a moving and significant institution. As you once famously said to me, most marriages start at a restaurant and most marriages end at a restaurant, <laughs> which I thought was a nice way to bookend life's experiences. You know. It was a bit harsh, but it's true. I, I suspect it is true. We even invented, for the purposes of this show, one diner who dies at the age of 96 sitting in a chair, and his niece, in heavy scare quotes, has to pay the bill. I think that's the range of, uh, of emotions that take place. But that's the real life of a restaurant. It's about incredibly tedious, long work, that finally explodes in these little moments of human illumination. Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker and now staff writer for Broadway. <laughs> uh, not quite Broadway yet, but hovering in New Haven, let's say. Thanks, Adam. Thanks so much, Chris. When I spoke with Simran Seti, it reminded me of Heston Blumenthal's summer seaside meal. If you've forgotten, that's the one with the iPod that plays the sounds of the sea while you're eating your first course. One diner reportedly broke down into tears. Memories are powerful things. For my part, I don't really want my dinner to become a multimedia experience. But it's true that playing with one's food has an ancient pedigree. Even the Romans did it, serving pheasant brains and peacock tongue. So instead of complaining, perhaps I should just sit back, put on some headphones, take a bite of scallop, and just enjoy the sounds of summer. That's it for this week. If you missed us, you can always listen to Milk Street Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. And don't forget to check out our brand new website. That's 177milkstreet.com. You can get free recipes and also subscribe to our magazine. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. 